You're listening to a Radio Stockdale podcast. Podcasts that are inspiring, interactive, and feature various discussions of leadership, ethics, and law. Philosophy at the Movies, a podcast where we discuss themes in the history of philosophy through the medium of films. I'm Alex Baker, and joining me as always... Sean Baker. And audience today, you better put on those sunglasses or start eating that trash can, because we're talking about the 1988 film, They Live. <laughs> so this is a film that uh, we follow a drifter. His name is Nada, but he's played by famous WWE wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper. Yeah. Um, and he is heading to, he's a drifter, he comes to Los Angeles, and he's looking for a job, he's able to land a construction job, and he's looking for a place to stay the night, he he befriends a co-worker named Frank, who they, who's also homeless, and they live in a little shanty town outside the city, near a soup kitchen near a church, and then one night... While Frank's talking about his troubles, he has a family, but he doesn't see them because he has trouble staying a job, and he's just just get barely getting by. Yes. Then one night, because they have a little television uh, implanted in this little shanty town, they're watching. The two guys are watching some television, but somebody breaks through their broadcast. Which you know, you think of late eighties and breaking through. You think of the infamous Max Headroom incident on WGN. If anybody remembers that. <laughs> The pirate, but he's this guy's telling things. These like somebody they're trying to keep us under control. They have these messages. Nobody really knows what it means. But then uh, Roddy Roddy Piper or uh, Nada, yeah, who's uh, never named Nada at yeah, all in the that's film. That's actually from that's the, only in the credits, right? It's actually from the <laughs> short story this was based on called Eight O'clock in the Morning by Ray Nelson. It's six pages, but the main character yeah. in that story, his name is Nada. Yeah. If I remember, and I don't want, sorry to interrupt the the uh, synopsis, but if I recall correctly, in the short story, I mean he's changed the changed it up a quite a bit for the film. Yeah. The short a story, page story, yeah. yeah. The population is under hypnosis, and somehow he breaks the hypnotic spell, and he's able to see what's truly going on. And in the case of this film, uh, it's some sort of mind control. Via the local cable channel fifty four. <laughs> yeah, it supposedly and, goes. Th- maybe there is other, you know, th- stations like that throughout the world. Yeah, other TV stations, but yeah. it's this one place in L.A. Right. And these guys are in the. He starts investigating the church, and he realizes they have they are being persecuted by these people. But they are they are the ones kind of releasing these broadcasts. Yes, they were the one breaking into the transmission of Channel Fifty Four, right? Yeah, and then and, uh, while they're gone, they get raided by the police. They're all beaten up. Some of them are killed, and the place is cleared out. But there's a box of sunglasses left. Yes, and that's when Nada gets them. He puts them on, <laughs> and then it's in black and white. But he sees things for how they really are. Yes, certain people, usually all of the wealthy elite. Mm-hmm. Are aliens? They have these disgusting-looking faces. They look like somebody with their face melted off. Yeah, it's just their bare muscle and skin. All yes. the facial tissue is practically gone. It looks what it looks like. But even you see all the subliminal messages and all the advertising and magazines and money. Like the, he looks at money and it says, "This is your god." 
Yes. And he sees like pictures for uh, like a vacation with this woman in bikini. It says marry and reproduce. Mm-hmm. Other signs say obey. Do not question authority. And yeah. so these very, uh, you see, look, they look like regular magazines, but when you put on the glasses, it's this That's white paper see. with large black text. Yes. <clears throat> he starts freaking out. And eventually, some peop- uh, some of these aliens start to get wise to what he's doing, and they start attacking him. Particularly, there are a couple cops. He beats them up, kills them, takes their guns, and then he goes into a bank because he figures a lot of wealthy bankers might be part of these aliens, and he puts them on. Yeah. And then he sees quite a few of them, and then he starts taking them out. He After he says the the famous line, "I come here to chew bubble gum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubble gum." <laughs> so he's now on the run. He's uh, he goes to he kidnaps this woman while he's trying to break out. Her name is Holly. Yep. He's trying to convince her that, and she finds out she works at this television station that he figures out is broadcasting these transmissions. He's trying to convince her, but when he turns his back, she conks him on the head, throws him out of her her apartment, and he yep. falls down a certain number of steps. But he survives. He's yep. on the run. He doesn't have the glasses anymore. She has them, and but he goes. Through people who were throwing out some of the stuff from that church, he goes into a dump truck, gets the glasses back. Right. He finds Frank, and Frank doesn't want anything to do with him because he's caused all this chaos. <laughs> so he's trying to get them to put the glasses on. And then we have and the then, world's longest fight scene. Yes, the greatest fight scene in history. <laughs> you get because it's Rowdy Roddy Piper. You know, there's going to be some uh, oh wrestling moves yeah, in there. Definitely. Incidentally, also one of the other he appeared at WrestleMania too, and I also believe Harvey Martin. Yeah, that's right. WWE wrestler yes. also appeared at yeah. WrestleMania yeah. too, but um, they have a WWE fight scene. He's doing probably a lot of the things you almost expected him to wear his kilt like he wore in the ring. I mean, oh, there's a body slam or two yeah, in the fight, slams, you know. suplex slams, all yeah. that kind of stuff. <laughs> it goes on, but eventually he gets the better of uh, Frank. Yes, he, he puts the glasses on. Now Frank's initiated. Right, they go on the run, but they make contact with the people who survived from the church attack. And they're trying to distribute the uh, distribute the pamphlets and information about what's really going on. Yeah, you know now they have contact lenses instead of you know which right. are less uh, uh, obvious and yeah. big, uh, incognito. Right. But again, the the wealthy elite break in, and now they got to escape. But they get this little watch thing that they can escape from. They steal that from one of the yeah. guys, and they're able to make it to their secret base. Yes. And then they see this dinner of all these aliens but the wealthy elite talking about how you know we've you know we're expanding our numbers they're supposedly recruiting people to become part of them yeah yeah it's important to note here that the uh, all through the film but particularly in that scene uh, the the people that are as it were wielding the power and are the elite are it's a mixture of the aliens with the bad faces aliens with really severe cases of uh, gangrene or something yeah. going on and humans who've decided to kind of throw in with the powers that be and uh, uh one of the characters that uh, uh roddy and or sorry um nada and frank run into is the guy we had seen earlier in yeah, the film watching, watching the, the tv and kind of complaining about uh having a headache and so forth and not liking that the fact that the uh broadcast of i forget it was a movie or something was being interrupted 
by the man trying to inform the populace of what's really going on. So he's, now he's 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 thrown in with the aliens. He's showing and, them around because he thinks yeah, they've been recruited and too. I like the way they handled his 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 appearance in this film because he goes from looking kind of like a bum guy to having this uh, very uh, kind of eighties pompadour going on. Did you notice nice the hairdo and, and yes. suit and tie and and talking about yeah i'll show you around you know you know now that you now that you've been recruited and you know essentially saying you know we're going to get paid very well for helping the aliens here control the human race um that guy did a good job i think with that role and eventually they he they he shows them the certain things gives them information they need to know to stop this and so they kill him but he kind of keeps saying oh i saw everybody sells out you know we all sell out every day so why can i you know why can i be on the winning team for once and yes. they kill him then they go through because it's underneath the station that they're trying to go they Channel have to find holly right they both holly well they're making the mad run up to the satellite to try to destroy it frank realize holly's also been recruited she kills frank and she's about to kill um nada nada but nada shoots her is a, he dies in the attempt, but he is able to break the transmission and destroy yes. and destroy but, the satellite, all while giving him the giving them the middle finger. Giving yeah, the, the aliens or and or the the humans that are either inadvertently or advertently helping them are hovering in helicopters. <laughs> he shoots him the finger. Yeah. But what's so funny? Uh, I thought so funny about that scene too was the fact that he's able to destroy this massive satellite dish a with gun. a small little handgun. It, it almost looks like a Derringer. It's so small, and he's able to wreak this yeah, kind of it's, havoc. It's video game logic. Like yes, a couple of bullets, and the whole and thing the whole thing just blows up. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, so it blows up, and the very last thing we see is you know people. Their cover is being broken. We everybody can see now. We see these two uh, these two uh, newscasters. Their faces have been shown, and everybody in the in the studios freaking out. Yeah. And the one funny thing is, uh, these guys are at a bar and they're look, watching, which I'm, I think is supposed to be Siskel and Ebert. Yes. They're specifically talking about. You know, sometimes these horror directors like John Carpenter go too far, yeah. and we see there are the aliens. Yeah, and then he does go too far with the very last scene, yeah, which very, is gratuitous sex scene, of course. Yeah. And but the, uh, but uh, yeah, and then the. And that's it. And, you know, this is, you know, I'm a big Carpenter fan. He's one of my favorite directors. The Thing is probably my favorite, hor- one of my favorite horror films yeah. of all time. And yeah. This is just a, it's a classic film. This is just a hilarious film. It is a romp. And what I like about it is it it, it gives you a, a lot of uh, opportunity to, to uh, uh, almost in the fashion of a Rorschach inkblot, um, to read into it. Uh, social commentary and obviously uh, Carpenter's social commentary was uh, very uh, by his own admission in fact he was quite proud of it Uh, very pointed a very pointed commentary on what he took to be uh, uh, the 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 downside of uh, 1980s uh, so-called Reaganomics Uh, there was a theory at the time basically it was the pejorative term for it was called trickle-down economics. Um, but the basic idea was if you if you cut the uh, top income tax rates and the corporate tax rates from what they were, interestingly, this is true in, uh, for a good portion of 20th century history, but particularly from the 40s on, uh, the top uh, income uh, bracket paid anywhere from 50 to 70% of their income in taxes. And uh, it, the 
rate was similar for corporations. Of course, corporations don't pay the taxes; they pay it on to their their uh, cust- uh, pass it on t- uh, to their customers in the price they pay for their services and goods. But what's interesting about it is, even though that was the case, you had a lot of productivity in the in the United States at that time, a lot of innovation. Yeah, there was a recession early on in the eighties, but it, it did improve. I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the the idea the idea behind trickle down was to kind of jumpstart the economy. Uh, by taking that top uh, corporate tax rate from the 70 per- 70th percentile down to uh, 20, somewhere between 20 and 40, it would depend on the legislative year you were talking about. Uh, the idea was there would be more money left over for the corporations and individuals that were also benefiting from the tax rates to turn around and invest in the economy and that was supposed to generate uh, more job growth, more innovation and in technology and so forth. And to a certain extent, you see that actually turned out to be the case, at least in the technological realm. Um, what's One of the funny things that I uh, think about in, in the movie is, uh, and in some of the other movies we looked at too, is uh, the, the, the lack of modern, uh, as it were, uh, uh, information technology and communications technology, and uh, a lot of a lot of the development of things like cell phones was just were just starting uh, in the uh, '80s, uh, partially because of these uh, incentives that were created by the government at that time. So you went from at a pretty rapid rate, you went from the big. Uh, cell phones that only the few could afford, the big bricks, right, uh, that only the very few, the wealthy could afford uh, over the course of maybe a decade and a half to everybody's favorite phones now, the iPhone, right, uh, which uh, uh, now most everybody can afford. And similar things like that have occurred, I would say, uh uh, not just during that time period from the 80s to the present day, but but even earlier uh, in, in uh, 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 the 30s and the 40s, for instance, uh, you, you went, or actually from the 20s up until the 50s, you went, you went to, I, I think of household goods a lot. Um, you went from uh, things like refrigerators being luxury items that only a few, once again, could afford. Uh, to the uh, to the point where uh, if if you're poor and you do not have a refrigerator, uh, that is uh, cause for uh, much consternation, and it's also cause for uh, government to make sure you're provided with one. Um, so, at any rate, that's a that's a long uh, kind of a long digression, but uh, there's certainly a. a, a commentary here on what he he saw as the darker side of of, yeah. of that uh, um, uh, uh, type of program government program to incentivize so what he sees is uh, a kind of selfishness on the part of the human beings that cooperate with the aliens in uh, uh, their control of the human species for whatever reason is we never really quite find out they why they're trying they're to wanting to control the them. planets and yeah. basically they say they do this at other planets they have something from the planet they, they want to destroy the environment in some way give them yeah, their yeah. needs and eventually when they've done what they need they'll move on to another planet. yeah it's, it's something like it's not altogether clear but it, it's there 
and uh, so it, it, it's a it's a commentary I think on what uh, uh, Carpenter sees as uh, what he'd say would be kind of the middle level people um, uh, that have been they have been convinced by the rhetoric. Their goal is to eliminate the middle class. Yeah, but the, see, they're the unwitting middle class, and they've been convinced by the rhetoric to work for those that are in real power the wealthy elite, and they're just uh, uh, not able to see that they're being used and that this, this is not for their benefit. They don't have the glasses yet, right? Yeah. So that's why you see the mix uh, in the bank, for instance. That That's a key scene, but also in that big dinner at the end, but certainly in the bank, you see the mix of uh, the aliens kind of watching things and controlling things in the bank. I mean, this is obviously symbolic bank, wealth, right? Um, but there's also uh, plenty of human beings in there. And not all the human beings uh, are, as I had previously described, kind of willingly going along with this and, and justifying uh, self-interest, maybe by rationalizing it in some way. Some of them are just simply like the cops. They're just doing their jobs. And their job, do, them doing their jobs happens to align with the, uh, the interests of the aliens that are really controlling things. So you have an interesting mixture there. So there's reason, uh, uh, because all that's going on, there's reason to take um, uh, this film as not necessarily leftist or Marxist in interpretation, although you can. Like I said, it's, an ink, it's a Rorschach inkblot. There's definitely a commentary on capitalism here. So there's room there for the Marxist interpretation. But more broadly speaking... And I think subsequent history of the interpretation of this film also indicates this. Um, its message is populist. And populism is a, a, an element of political theories on the left and the right. Uh, so it's not completely Marxist is the point I'm making here. And I would, I would point uh, uh, as kind of um, uh, support for this um, to... Uh, um, Carpenter's becoming upset at uh, uh, the more, I guess, right-leaning people that are uh, often the deranged right, I would say. Uh, uh, Alex Jones is who I'm yeah, thinking of the, here. The typical um, uh, international Jewish conspiracy. Yeah. There's, it's particularly the bankers, so they're yeah. going with that stereotype. Yeah, and I think and Jones to, actually said it was his favorite film. And, and Carpenter Carpenter's gets upset. Out. Yeah, he's had to go out and say, like, that is yeah. not what I'm saying. Right. Um, but that's kind of the beauty of this film, I think. It, it's, it's kind of an object lesson in, uh, because it is kind of a Warshock inkblot, right? It's not overt, overtly either left or right, but it is overtly populist. And I think it, it does a good job of portraying what often happens in, in kind of populist movements like that. And certainly with people that have adopted Marxism, this happens a lot. Um, as, as it were, once you've kind of internalized the basics of the theory, uh, it's like you're putting on the glasses. And uh, through that ideology, you get this feeling. And a lot of people that... Um, were communists and maybe uh, have left the Communist Party, 
describe this experience. And it's not unique just to the left. Once again, I would say there, there are probably people on the right that have this kind of experience too. When they buy into an ideology, an interpretation through which they can, they can uh, 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 apply a narrative to everything they see, an explanation to everything they see. The ideology is able to take the facts and interpret them in a way that seems to corroborate the theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, they will describe that experience, especially when they're in the throes of the ideology and believe it's true, um, as having the scales drop off of your eyes and seeing reality for the first time. Uh, that's well, that's a thing I really like about this film. I, uh, this is one way to read the film. Uh, the the ideology of the the the, the glasses kind of uh, play the role of the political or philosophical ideology, and that uh, once adopted, you, 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 you at least while you be- believe the ideology, you you become very convinced you are seeing the truth for the very first time, right? He does a great job with that. I, I like the I like the metaphor. And it, I remember watching one review on YouTube of this, and I don't, I can't remember the exact video it was, but they were comparing it to particularly Ghostbusters, mm-hmm. one of the classic films of the 80s. They're saying that is more of a typical capitalist look. It's like this, these guys, ragtag group of guys, kind of goofballs, get together to form this group. They make a lot of money, yeah. and they become very popular because they're really good at their job. But one of the villains in the movie is this jerk uh, EPA uh, guy from the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, saying, "Oh, your stuff is bad. It's polluting. I got to shut you down." He's reviewed as the jerk because he's just trying. These guys are just trying to do a good business and save people's lives, and he's getting in their way with yeah. you know red tape. Yeah. So it's that message. But in this message, it's the other way. We're contrasting that where it is these people and these powers, and it's the dangers of unrestrained capitalism, and you know it. Even though it's an 80s film, I think with that leaning, it, it reminds me more of the stuff you would see in the 60s, particularly in European cinema, which was always very left-leaning. Yeah. There was a famous uh, British film by Lindsay Anderson called If. It was mm-hmm. with Malcolm McDowell, who later would go on Clockwork Orange. But that yep. is about this um, you know, boarding school for the elite, these elite kids, and it becomes a big class warfare at the end. I think at the very end, it literally becomes a battleground. <laughs> yes, yes. And then also uh, the director who actually just passed away, a famous French director, Jean-Luc Godard, and there was a film he did called Alphaville, a science fiction film, and that had some sort of uh, kind of left-leaning views, and he was always very avowed about his yeah. So it felt like it was a film from the 60s, even though it's from the 80s, as far as its political leanings. Yeah, and, and also it, it has the definite feel of films from the 50s, B-movie, B science fiction movie films, which in that time were, were influenced by the fear of communism, interestingly yeah. enough. Invasion so, of the body snatchers. Exactly, right? So um, it, it's funny how cinema reflects uh, political fears and political philosophies. At, at different times and what's what's unique about those sorts of films in this this film i think is the fact that um um you you have in both cases uh, the basic idea being that there is this uh um all-encompassing almost omniscient and omnipotent conspiracy uh in in the case of uh 
in the case of um, uh, this film, it's it's the capitalists, right? Uh, uh, kind of uh, the aliens, I, I guess, are are the capitalists running the system, so to speak. And in the in the fifties B movies, uh, it's more, I guess. Uh, uh, the aliens are supposed to re- reflect the communist menace. In the 60s, it, um, you, you've got the, uh, I, I guess it's more populist, but it's also left-leaning too. Um, uh, the characters are, that are in control of things are, are representative of the government as it stands, right? And maybe the private sector as it stands. Um, but what's kind of unique about all of those is this idea that... Um, uh, once you've kind of tapped into and understood uh, the reality, the conspiracy that's going on, um, you feel the characters feel obligated to force others to see the truth as well, right? You, you see that in the in the case of the the kind of the preacher guy that's trying to break in and, and, and inform people. You see that hilariously in the case of uh, Nada and Frank's interminable fight frank doesn't want to see it right um and he doesn't want anything to do with it he's just looking out for himself he's not selfish he's just kind of self-interested he's worried about survival right and um you see that kind of uh um zealousness and that wanting to show the truth to people uh in these kinds of movements right uh it's almost an evangelical zeal and uh, you can you can see that there's always a character like that in these films, and and you've got to see the he's telling you've got to see the truth. You've got to see. I'll force you if you don't see the truth. And what's interesting about that is that reflects what often happens in reality. Um, you can you can see it, and the only reason I'm thinking of it uh, uh, in in connection with. Um, uh, the left and communists. So I'm, I'm reading a few histories of Vietnam's uh, um, early formative uh, communist years. I mean, uh, Ho Chi Minh was um, somebody that was uh, a, a dyed-in-the-wool communist, right? So you get uh, you get in memoirs and interviews and so forth with people that lived through that period in that country, um, this very interesting, at the same time, kind of disturbing phenomenon occurring where they feel like, you know, we're the vanguard. We've seen the truth. The uh, uh, peasant class, uh, for whatever reason, refuses to see the truth. It might be because they're, they're still being influenced by bourgeois uh, uh, mentality that was formed during the capitalist uh, and uh, feudalistic eras in our country. So we have to do what we find necessary in order them either to make them see the light and behave accordingly, make them see that they are of the uh, oppressed classes and behave accordingly, or if they don't do that, second best, we have to make them behave as if they do. So you see in the history of communist countries, and Vietnam in particular, just because I'm looking at it at the time, but this was a common element in Russia and certainly in China. Uh, they, they, these people that considered themselves 
to be the ones wearing the glasses, the vanguard, the uh, uh, the people working in the interests of the long-term benefit of the human race, they start to coerce their um, populations to behave as they see they should behave. And to a much lighter extent and a humorous extent, you see that in Nada too. Um, he's... Uh, and it, it, you know, in the, in the universe of this film, it actually is the truth. The aliens are uh, uh, controlling the human race for, for their own purposes, whatever it might be. Um, and I would imagine uh, if you asked um, uh, Marxist thinkers and and even maybe even Carpenter himself, you know, uh, do you see do you see in this a, a little bit of a commentary on? Uh, how how the left looked, looks at uh, colonialism and imperialism, he'd say yes. They they would certainly say yes. The aliens are imperialists. They're colon- uh, they're they're treating Earth as as the European uh, colonialists uh, treated Indochina or other areas. Right? Uh, they're just moving in so they can open up markets or take raw materials out. They're gonna. They're going to exhaust those things, and then they'll just move on, right? Because that's what capitalists do. Um, so um, they, th- there's that element in this film, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting you brought up Vietnam, because in, re- in Spike Lee's most recent movie, The Five Bloods, which is about these uh, five African-American veterans from Vietnam, going back to Vietnam to get something from when they were in the war, yeah. they go there and they see all these, you know, American businesses like McDonald's. And they said, like, we, you know, why were why did we have to fight a war? We could have just sent McDonald's and Burger King over there. We could have won. We, it happened anyway. Yes, and yes. it reminds me of because that even kind of bring that up in this movie. To, they talk about how there's no countries anymore. That yes. brings me the one of the most famous uh, scenes in the 1976 movie Network. Mm-hmm. It's the scene, the only scene you see with uh, Ned Beatty. Yeah, and it's, he's the head of guy, and Howard Beale's been causing all sorts of trouble. And Beatty says, "You have messed with the primal forces of, of nature. nature." Yes, that's a and he great. He says scene. there are no countries anymore; it's all businesses now. So right. it's the idea. And you think of the, when you think of this message, especially with the upper class, the, the elimination of even patriotism and prides in countries, and how America would react, or how yes. you know England or whatever. It's more of how. You know, IBM or how Burger King or McDonald's or Coca-Cola. I mean, there's, you know, when uh, former communist countries started becoming Americanized, one of the first things they would do is open their McDonald's or have Coca-Cola. Yes. yes. That idea. So it's more of it's now businesses that control everything, not countries or presidents anymore. Yes. And that's very much, I would say, also kind of in line with a Marxist interpretation of the film, um, because they say. Uh, what they say is that the uh, the the the, uh, the capitalist class, the the people that run the capitalist system and the bourgeoisie, um, they think primarily internationally, right? And the the, the uh, communists would tell you, well, we're, we're we think primarily internationally too. We want to liberate the proletarian around the world. So we don't tend to think in terms of uh, national boundaries and so forth. We try to work uh, on that project globally as much as we can at the same time. Why do we do that? Well, because that's the way the capitalists are, and their, you know, uh, their conspiracy to control the world through 
multinational corporations uh, is is trying to do the same thing. So uh, trying to enslave humanity, turn us all into uh, uh, workers, uh, uh, underpaid workers for these corporate monstrosities. Uh, so we're just doing the same thing. And you can certainly uh, uh, see elements of that in this film too. Um, very interesting. Now, what I find also, and I don't know if this was an, an, an unintended commentary or not on, on these kinds of ideologies, um, it's telling that the people that are allegedly in control of um, this world are uh, ugly, misshapen humanoids, right? Um, is that, and this is a question I'm asking, I don't know, um, is that uh, an inadvertent warning to us that um, in, in, in adopting these kind of conspiratorial and populist uh, uh, interpretations of history, it seems like it's almost necessary that in doing so, you pick out a class that are the uh, evil conspirators and you dehumanize them in a way that uh, uh, portrays them as, as I said, being evil, immoral, not caring about humanity, just simply wanting to enslave humanity for their own benefit and so forth. And notice once not as convinced of this, he has absolutely no qualms about uh, killing not only the aliens, but any humans that happen to be in his way as he's trying to liberate humanity from these people. Um, this, is a, this is kind of a, a, a concern anytime there's conflict, uh, you know, where you've got antagonists, whether it be in war or politics or anything, or business for that matter. Um, this tendency we do have to dehumanize, or sometimes it's called othering the enemy, um, and uh, allowing that to be a justification for um, uh, immoral behavior on your own part. Um, I don't know if he's uh, intentionally decided or made the choice to uh, use that kind of imagery to warn us about that. I'm probably stretching it a little bit here. It is, after all, John Carpenter. Um, but it is, because it's there, I think that's another his, kind of interesting his, interpretive thread that you can you can he, lay on this thing. His movies are always about the other. I mean, these almost faceless or shapeless creatures. I mean, obviously, Michael Myers, he'd be this whole... Aura is shrouded in mysteriousness, but even like Assault on Precinct 13, the rival gang, mm -hmm. practically zombies, the fog, there are these creatures coming out from the ocean. He's always done that with his movies because he's a horror yeah. guy. That's yeah. kind of what he does. Yeah. But okay, getting close to the end of my questions, is there anything else we want to bring up before we start wrapping up? Other films about like the dark side of the 80s. I mean, one obviously you would have to go with is Oliver Stone's Wall Street, but another yeah. one, uh, American Psycho, which always seems to have a resurgence every five years, whether it's through DVDs or internet memes now. But that film is, it's, it was in 2000, it's based on a novel, but it's 
takes place in the 80s and this character is this reprehensible Wall Street broker who has these ideologies that he's a serial killer. Yeah. You don't, even in the movie, you don't really know if it's just in his head or not. But all you, throughout all these characters, they're just like the way they talk. It's just so reprehensible. They're just yeah. like the, they're just these obviously horrible Wall Street bankers. Yes, yes. Right. And again, uh, it's it's very... I, I, I worry a little bit about the, about the, the interpretations of, of capitalists and bankers in a lot of films, they're 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 portrayed as evil and uncaring and so forth, and you know it, it seems rather simplistic, right? Um, what was I going to think of? There was oh uh, yeah, the the last I guess my last point, interestingly, is if you look at if if you if you look at interviews with Carpenter on this, I, there was one I ran into somewhere. Where they said, you know, are you not? Uh, do you not like capitalism? He, he actually said, yes, I actually do like capitalism. I'm a capitalist myself, you know. And you're right. I mean, you're making money off of of, of sending this political message back well, in the eighties. Sometimes his movies, yeah. did the, you know, infamously, uh, the thing came out the exact same time as ET, and that was a huge box office bomb. Even though we consider it a oh, that's classic. A great, that's a classic. But film. it's like his movies yeah. sometimes don't make the money that yeah. the studios. But to. he's aiming to make the money. Right. That's the thing, and and he admits that he says, "Yes, I'm a capitalist. I just don't think." Or he, I forgot exactly what the quote was, but he says there's just some kinds of capitalism that are wrong, right? And I guess he was when he was pressed on that, he said unrestrained capitalism. Um, well, we haven't had an unrestrained capitalism. The '80s were not unrestrained capitalism. I'm sorry. I mean, capitalism hasn't been unrestrained in. Uh, since the, those days of Rockefeller and J.P. Well, Morgan. even before that, I mean, when Marx wrote his books, you know, he he had justifiable reason to be morally outraged at the capitalism at that time. That was unrestrained capitalism. We don't much have it now, and so I, I think it's a bit overwrought. I think the social commentary, but it's still a hoot. This this movie is just a hoot. I, I love this thing. It huh? cracks me up. The, the lines that I guess Roddy Piper comes up with, the lines, I, I think he just pulled them out of his wrestling repertoire, you know? They're hilarious. He's, he's kind of an understated but funny. Uh, it's too bad he didn't do anything else, did he? He did a couple of movies. Yeah. He was somewhat, he didn't star in it, obviously, but he was a consultant, I believe, on The Wrestler, which is a, a very good movie, but is not a comedy at all. It's a very depressing look at the life of this pro wrestler near the end of his career. Oh, wow. That, that sounds interesting. Yeah. You might have to do that. That's a good one. All right. But anyway, I mean, I mean, I know we've been kind of leaning heavy on the political commentary of this well, thing. Well, you have but- to. But it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. This thing is fun. And, and like I said, it's a bit of an Rorschach ink blot. I mean, the people on the left and the right can look at it and go, see, see, I told you, you know. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy at the Movies. You can find this podcast and more podcasts produced by the Stockdale Center by visiting the Radio Stockdale page at usne.edu. This program is hosted by Radio Stockdale. There you can also listen to their podcasts such as Ethics and the Naval Warrior and The Do-Over. If you like this podcast, you might be interested in my other podcasts, Real Sounds, for each episode dedicated to classic movie soundtracks. That can be found online at soundasinema.podomatic.com. So until next time, I'm Alex Baker. And I'm Sean Baker. Saying I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. gum.